So this morning we're looking at Romans chapter 8. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Okay, we're looking at Romans chapter 8. Hopefully that's open in front of you. The reason why we're in Romans chapter 8 this morning is because we're in the middle, the third part of a series about the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. We've looked about the, uh, the glory of God being God's power. And so now as we consider the rest and how, how God actually saves sinners, we must address this issue that we are sinners. And so this morning, we're going to look at the topic of the sinfulness of mankind. And when I'm talking about the sinfulness of mankind, it's not just those people out there. I'm talking about us in here. Sinners. We are all sinners. We're going to consider man's sinful condition today. And it doesn't take long to realize you. I, I realize, and I don't need to convince you that we live in a broken, wicked, and evil world. Um, you just have to look in, look in your community, look in, look at, look outside into our our city, our country, uh, read the news headlines, look at our world. We live in a sin cursed and broken and corrupt world. We have terrorism, rape, murder, wars, abuse, greed, deception, tyranny, and a whole host of other problems that plague our world. And these things are not just, as I said, out there, another country, another side of the world, but they're in here, in our city, in our country. In fact, this past week, there was um, a shooting and a murder just a few hundred yards from our house, just across the, across the green space um, in our community. And so wickedness and evil is all around us. In terms of the problem, that's when we disagree. We can all agree that there is a problem, there is brokenness, and there is wickedness. In terms of what is the root issue or how can we deal with that problem, then we get into disagreements. Some feel that the real issue is a lack of education or technology. We just don't have the right, edu- if we had the right education, then we would not have all the crime and the abuse that we see. Let's look at our world. We live in the most educated day and age of history. And yet we see crime, hatred, abuse, greed, sexual exploitation is all rampant in our day and age. In fact, people are using education and technology to further their wicked behavior. So education and technology, while it could be helpful, there's a certain truth to that. It's not the solution to the problems of our world. In fact, some of our most notorious criminals, for instance, a man like Ted Bundy, who killed more than 30 women was very well educated, a lawyer. Um, So education is not the answer. Somebody say, well, the real issue is we have a lack of opportunity. We have a lack of opportunity. If we had more opportunity for employment, especially around this world, then we would see a real change in how people act. But yet we have to acknowledge again, we live in a time and an age where there's no greater opportunity, especially us in the Western world, to thrive and to excel compared to other time periods. We are here in North America, the land of opportunity, yet we see brokenness in our country and to our neighbors to the south just as much as we see around this world. And yet we live in a land of opportunity. We still see abuse, greed, tyranny, murder, and a variety of other acts of hatred. And so opportunity, again, is helpful as far as it goes, but it's not the real issue that we see in our world. Some people suggest the real problem is lack of money. If people just had enough money to care for themselves, then we wouldn't see this kind of greed and and other kinds of evil because flowing from people lacking money. Let me give you a few examples. Michael Carroll was a garbage man in England. And at age 19, he won $14.4 million in a lottery. 
This is in 2002. He bought a mansion. He spent his money on plenty of drugs and gold jewelry. And by 2012, he was broke and living off unemployment checks. He now works at a cookie factory making about $300 a week. We have Gerald Muswagon. He was uh, Canadian, Winnipeg, Manitoba. He won $10 million in 1998. He bought cars for friends and family, made his new house into a party pad. But eventually he was out of money and working minimum wage to support his six children and his girlfriend. In 2005, seven years after his big win, he took his own life. Jeanette Lee won $18 million in 1993. 2001, she filed for bankruptcy. Willie Hurt won $3.1 million in Michigan, 1989. Two years later, he had wrecked his marriage, lost custody of his kids, and was charged with the attempted murder of his ex-wife. The lawyer said he spent his winnings on drugs and divorce. We have, what about someone who goes to church? We have Billy Bob Harold Jr. down in Texas. In 1997, he won $31 million dollars. And he gave a large portion to his church since he was a church goer. He quit his job at Home Depot, but he ended up losing his marriage. And in 1999, less than two years after his win, he had no money and he took his own life. The Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And let's take long. You can go on Google and look at the lottery winners. It is not good. The majority of which, the huge majority of which has caused significant problems as they have got money through their lottery. Destroyed their lives, destroyed marriages. You know, and we as a society still haven't learned. You think about who our society loves to esteem. You know, can we think of any group of people that we love to esteem more than the celebrities of Hollywood? You know, here are the people. They're rich. They're famous. They're beautiful. And and everybody wants to be just like these people in Hollywood. Look at their lives. Look at what their riches and their beauty and their fame has brought them. There's so much destruction. Try, try to name marriages in Hollywood that are successful and thriving and kids that are normal. You'd be hard-pressed to even find any. We, all we see is divorce and heartache. And we see children just unable to cope in this life in, into addiction, injections and drugs and all these kinds of things. So certainly money is not the solution to our world's problems. In fact, it creates so much brokenness. Others say, well, the real issue is a lack of morality. We need, we need, or religion. We need more law. That's the real issue. But as you contemplate our own society, we have plenty of laws in our country, plenty of laws here in our province, plenty of laws in our city. And every year, more and more laws are being added to the books. Why do we need more and more laws every single year? Because people are creative in finding ways to break laws and finding other ways to do evil things. So we have to come up with new laws to say, no, you can't do this. People continue to find loopholes and oversights and ways around. And so some feel we need more laws. And, and, and in fact, uh, to deal with terrorism, they say we need more laws uh, to, to restrict weapons and guns. But the question is, is law really going to stop terrorism? Is making a law to, to ban a certain kind of gun really going to stop terrorism? Are, are the terrorists going to say, oh, it's against the law to have that gun? No, I, I'm not going to do it. They're already breaking the law. They're already murdering people. That's what they want to do. And they're going to do whatever they can to inflict their carnage. And so laws aren't going to stop them. In fact, we have a slogan about rules, don't we? Rules are meant to be broken. And we have a curious behavior that whenever we're told not to do something in our human nature, we want to do it. 
Roman, uh, Romans 7, Paul talks about this when he says, uh, the law says do not covet. But he found when he read that law, his heart filled with covetousness. Now he wanted to covet things because he was told not to do that. And if you're a mom here, you know when you tell your kids, don't step in that puddle. And maybe that child didn't even notice that puddle. But as soon as mom said that, that small little puddle suddenly became so big. In fact, that puddle was all around them. There's nowhere they could go except to stop in that puddle, right? No way out. And so, boom, they step in the puddle and then they look at mom. What's she going to do? Maybe they go to dad, try to get some comfort. Okay, but when we say no, so often that tempts us to go and to do it. Others say, well, that's not just law in general, but it's religion, religious law. That can help stop evil and, and, and stop this destruction and brokenness that we see in our world. This is what the religious leaders in Jesus' day were convinced of, that you can have an external form of religion that would hold back evil. But religion, law-keeping, even laws based on Christian principles is not what our world needs. Look with me at the text at Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. Romans 8, 3 and 4. It says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That is, the law is unable to stop sin. The law is unable to remove our our condemnation is an inability of the law to do those things. And when we consider trying to follow law keeping to help, we recognize we've already broken God's law. Spurgeon said this. He said, listen to me a moment and quit your fancied strength. You, my hearer, cannot keep the law of God for you have already broken it. How can you preserve a crystal vase entire when you've already dashed it to atoms? So you recognize that law, morality, even law based on religious principles found in the scriptures are powerless to deal with the brokenness in our world. And so we see that these things, education, technology, opportunity, money, morality, religion, these things can be helpful in their ways, but they don't deal with the root issue. We can see that stiffer penalties can help restrain evil to a certain extent and for a certain length of time, but they're unable to deal with the real problem that plagues the human race. And why is it such a big deal to try to find the real issue? Because think of a doctor for a second. What's a doctor do? They try to diagnose what is wrong, and then they try to treat what is wrong based on what their diagnosis is. Now, if you come to the doctor and he says, well, you have pneumonia, and he starts treating you for pneumonia, but in fact you have lung cancer, well, that's a pretty serious misdiagnosis that's going to affect you adversely. And so if we do not have a proper diagnosis of what's wrong in this world, then we're going to be treating the symptoms or we're going to be treating another problem or in fact we might even be adding to the problem and things will get worse. And so as we consider the real issue, the Bible has always had the correct diagnosis. And what does the Bible say the real problem is? The real problem is sin in the human heart. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 7. 21 to 23. Jesus said this, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so what we see is what Jesus says, what Romans 8 says, is that the real problem is the sinfulness of our own hearts. That's the real issue in our world today that needs to be addressed. Look with me again at Romans 8. I'm going to read verses 5 to 8. It says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, so this passage, again, tells us what the big issue is. It's the mind, it's the heart that is set on the flesh. It's the natural man. It's the man who does not have the spirit of God. This passage gives a contrast. Those who have the spirit and those who do not have the spirit. Those who are a genuine believer, a Christian, a follower of Christ, and those who are not. Now, no one here is born a Christian. Okay, No no one here is born from birth a Christian. We all must be born again. We all must be born above. And the Bible calls this the new birth, where the divine life is implanted into the soul of man, such that we are a new creation, new desires, desires for holiness, desires for the Lord Jesus Christ. The blinders have been removed. We see our sin for what it is, and we come to Christ in confession and repentance and faith. That's a product of the new birth. The product of having the mind that is set on the spirit and not on the flesh. By nature, we have our mind set on the flesh. And that is the real issue. And he talks about here all the sinfulness stems from this one fact. So the real problem here is the human heart without the spirit of God. Apart from God's spirit, the human heart is full of of wickedness. It's a factory producing all kinds of evils, all kinds of idols. It pollutes our body. It pollutes the earth. It's the reason for the brokenness that we see. And ultimately it ends in our own death. It leads to our own death. Now this morning, before we look at the great truths in here that talk about the solution to the problem, we know that's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the solution to the problem of sin and to our world's issues. Okay. Before turning to the solution, I want to look further at sin itself. Because when we consider sin, okay, we know it's bad, it's not good, it's against God's law. But when we really consider sin truthfully, we recognize that we are more sinful than we ever imagined. And sin is way worse, if I can say it that way, than we've ever conceived of. And so what I'll do this morning is look at Four different ways from this text that highlights the human condition, highlights the human sinful condition. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just four truths from Romans chapter 8, these first eight verses, that show just how sinful sin really is. Just how, how bad it is, this condition that we are in. Jeremiah 79 says we are, our human hearts are desperately sick. We're flawed, we're broken, we're sinful, we're corrupt. What exactly does that mean? We're going to look at this text here this morning to see that. And I hope that 
as much as we understand sin to be bad, as we look through this text, that you would realize it's even worse than what we could even imagine. First thing about sin from this passage. Sin is a trap with no hope of escape. Okay, we're going to look at four ways that sin is presented in this passage. The first one is that sin is a trap with no hope of escape. Look with me again in Romans 8, the first five verses. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin of death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. You see here is that sin is a trap with no hope of escape. There are four wonderful truths mentioned in these verses. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great truth. No condemnation. No wrath of God coming your way. But what does it mean for those who are stuck in sin? It means they're condemned. Condemned. Condemned to die. Condemned to suffer the wrath of God. You see also... Those who are in Christ are free from the law of sin and death in this second verse. But those who have set their minds on the things of the flesh are actually in bondage to the law of sin and death. Enslaved, trapped, chained to this law of sin and death. Those who are in Christ, it says in verses 3 and 4, have the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in them. Conversely, those are not in Christ have no righteousness. They don't have the righteousness required. Again, they're in a trap that they can't climb out of because who can satisfy God's laws when we've already broken it? No one. And verse five tells us that those who are in Christ live, they walk according to the spirit and those who are in the flesh live according to the flesh. They're in a trap, condemned, in bondage to the law of sin and death, not having the righteous requirement of God, and they live according to the flesh. Now we think of those who live according to the flesh, those that have their natures tied to the flesh, their minds and hearts tied to the flesh. Don't think always flesh is is worldly. Those are bad things. Okay, it's not just talking about those things that we think of as corrupt, wicked, evil, immoral But it could be good things. It could be an an outward form of religion. It could be like the Pharisees who in their day were so righteous. Yet they would have been in this passage as those who were condemned. Those who were held bondage to the law of sin and death. Even though externally they were so righteous. These were the holy men of their day. And so the danger that we have here as we listen this morning is not to be out there and, and living what we consider this, this, this law of, or this life of, of wickedness and immorality. Our danger is to dress up a heart of flesh with this external reality, the external righteousness. You know, to dress it up. And, and we can take a heart that is bent on the flesh 
And you can put on some external glitter. You can put on some external righteousness, some morality. You know, we can get cleaned up pretty good. And so people can't see. And we can even deceive ourselves in what's on the inside. But it's not going to do us any good because we are still enslaved to the law of sin and death. We still lack God's righteous requirement. When we consider this, it's, it's almost as if you were to bring your car to a mechanic and tell the mechanic that the, you think the engine is dead, you know, and this thing is not going to work, work anymore. And so that mechanic figures, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to help you out here. And so that mechanic, he takes your car and he goes, well, you really need some nice new rims, you know, some low profile tires. You know, so you can see your nice brakes in there and I'm going to do all that for you. And in fact, I'm going to give you a nice leather interior. I'm going to upgrade you, you know, put a nice sat-nav system. It's going to be deluxe, the whole nine yards. And then externally, well, this car is getting a bit old. I'm going to redo the whole bodywork, and we'll put new paint job, new detailing. And then you get there for your car. Like ten, tens of thousands of dollars later, you have this new car. You're like, boy, it's so great. What a great car. And all your friends would be impressed. But the engine is done. It's useless. You've wasted all of your money, all of your effort, because it's the inside that was broken. And the same thing. We can go along and we can deceive ourselves and we can deceive others that we have this good external exterior. And say, boy, you're such a great person. But the inside is a heart that is bent on the flesh, not on the things of God. And we can, in fact, trap or be in this trap and not even realize it ourselves. So we can dress it up all we want and at great cost and great effort. But in our human nature, apart from God's grace, we're in a trap with no hope of escape. So this is the extent of the problem. Number one, a trap with no hope of escape. Number two, look at verse number six. Look at verse number six. It says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the, on the spirit is life and peace. We see from this that sin is a terminal problem. Sin is a terminal problem. To set your mind on the things of the flesh is death. Whereas in the spirit we have life and peace. But sin ultimately is a terminal problem. We might have a day, a week, a year, a decade, or most a few decades to live. But we have to realize each and every one of us are going to die. And that's because of sin has entered this world. None of the other solutions that we had talked about in the beginning, whether that's money, opportunity, morality, none of those things are going to deal with the problem of death. Death is, is the great enemy. We all must face it. And none of those other solutions, more education, more government, more employment, are going to deal with this problem of death. Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This should cause us really to see the emptiness of all those other so-called solutions to the problem of this world. Because none of them fix sin and none of them fix this issue of death. Now, I certainly don't wish this upon anyone, but imagine if you were having some symptoms and you went to see the doctor. The doctor diagnosed you with stage four cancer and said you only have six months to live. If this was the prognosis from the doctor, what would you think? Would you think, six months? Boy, I better finish my education. I better go back to school and finish my post-secondary. 
or I, I better get hard working at work and, and try to build my career. I, I, I need to earn some more money before I die. No, if you have six months to live, you're thinking, what can I do, if anything, to find a cure so this won't be true in me so I can live? Or how am I going to spend my time in this remaining six months? None of those other things are going to stop your death. Some people might think, well, I better try to clean up my act and be a good person. But when we do that, we're forgetting that we're already unrighteous. We've already broken God's laws. So even if we tried our best in those last six months to live as best as we could be, we've already broken God's law. We already stand condemned before him. Realizing that we have six months to live should drive us to see our problem of death is too big for anything else that this world could offer. That we need the Lord Jesus Christ. That we need the one who has conquered sin and conquered death and who promises us resurrection, eternal life as a free gift. And so we should seek the Lord with all of our strength and all of our might, knowing that we have six months before we stand before our almighty creator in judgment. That should be the due course of action. Now, what happens if that doctor said not six months, but he said you had a year to live? Would it change it? What if he said he had two years to live? Should that change our need? That we need a solution to the problem of death and to the problem that we've broken God's law and need a savior? Does that change it? What if he said you have five years to live? Ten years? You, 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 have, you have a couple decades to live. You recognize that is the, the, the diagnosis that's been given to each and every one of us. We have a short amount of time. Does the amount of time you have before your death change the fact that you're going to die and that you need redemption? It doesn't. It shouldn't change our thinking, whether we have six months or whether we have 15 years. The reality is we don't know how much time we have, and it should cause us to run to Jesus Christ who has conquered death. And to recognize that our sin is a terminal problem that needs the healing touch of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the second fact. Our sin is a terminal problem. And it doesn't get any better. In fact, it gets worse. Number three, our sin is hostility against God. Look at verse number seven. Verse number seven says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Our sin is against the creator of this universe. Now, at this point in our day and age, people say, well, what's the big deal about that? By sin against God? Come on. God's all loving. He's all merciful. He's all kind. If there's anyone you're going to sin against, it would be against this all loving, all kind, all merciful God, right? He's going to forgive. He's going to look at you with favor. And that's our attitude today. Or that's some people's attitude today. But the fact that God is loving can be a comfort to the sinful, but in fact, it should be terrifying to the sinful. And why is that? Because God loves not just everything and anything. God loves truth. God loves goodness. God loves righteousness. And because he loves those things, he hates falsehood. He hates wickedness. He hates unrighteousness. He hates immorality. Because you love children, you hate it when they're abused. 
Because you love women, you should hate pornography and have them displayed like that. Because you love children and because you love women. God is the same way. Psalm 5 and and 6 says this. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Talking about God. It says, you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You notice the very next verse in Psalm 5, 7. It says, God, you are abundant in steadfast love. In one breath, he says, you abhor the bloodthirsty. You will destroy the deceitful man and you're a God of abundant, steadfast love. Because God is loving, it's terrifying to be a sinner. It's terrifying to be unrighteous. It's terrifying to be someone who's spoken lies or deceived. Because God is loving God. Now, what's our... Back to our original question. Why is this a big deal? Well, in verse 7, it says that we are hostile to God. That is, we are enemies of God. It's not just that we've sinned against God, but now our sin has made us an enemy of God. We are hostile towards Him. Now, if you think of an example here in our plane that we can understand more readily, if, if I'm hostile towards my brother, you know, Just for the record, I love my brother and he loves me. But if I was hostile towards him, the consequences of that are are not too severe. You know, I'd be a little bit awkward at family parties, might get a cold shoulder, you know, awkward between the families. But if I was hostile towards the Calgary Police Service, you know, I was I was on their enemy list. Be a bit more. I I, I might go to jail considering uh, the level of that severity of hostility. Okay, and if I was hostile towards you know, the RCMP, our national police. Again, the consequences are even more severe. And I can plead, but look at these police officers, these men and women, they're so loving. They're so kind. They're so compassionate. Is that going to help me as someone who's hostile towards them? It's not. Because of their loving, because they're loving, because they're kind, because they're compassionate, they are going to come down with the law and remove me because I'm one of their enemies. Because of their love. I would be locked up. Now, if I was hostile not only to our police, but if I was hostile to another country, for instance, if I was the enemy of Russia, well, you may not see me again. You might not be prison for me. Maybe something much worse. Okay? And so you recognize the, the, the amount of authority, sovereignty that someone carries. Do you be hostile towards them increases those consequences. And we, as sinners, are hostile to a holy God who has made this universe. A few weeks ago, we talked about the power of God, the power to speak and to create this universe out of nothing. The size of this universe, the millions and billions of galaxies and stars, God spoke that into existence. To stand before him and to be like a wax figurine in front of a blast furnace. God is so powerful. And we are hostile towards him as sinners. We are his enemies. That's problem number three. Number four. You don't think it can get any worse? It does get worse. Our sin is marked by inability. Inability. Look at verse seven and eight with me. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These two verses, among many others in the Bible, 
are some of the most controversial when it comes to the doctrine of sin. That we are unable to obey God. That we are unable to please Him. That we are born in inability. Not having the capacity to obey God's law. How could He judge us if we don't even have the capacity to obey? How could He judge us if we don't have the capacity to please Him? And so some would say, well, it's not a total inability. It's just talking about how it's very difficult. It's very difficult to obey God. Listen to this in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. It says this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How does Paul paint that picture? How does the Spirit paint that picture of our sinfulness? All of us, by nature, children of wrath. In fact, it says we were dead in our trespasses. Not physically dead. Spiritually dead. An inability to do what is pleasing to God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, in the context of that chapter, talking about the gospel, it says this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There's an inability not only to please God, not only to obey God, but 1 Corinthians 2.14 says there's inability even to understand the gospel for the natural person. Oh yes, they can understand there's God and there's our sin and there's Christ who came and we are to believe in Him and repent in Him. They can understand the facts. But to have more of an intellectual assent to see the beauty of God's plan and design to bow their knees to Christ it's impossible. Scripture says they cannot do it. They cannot do it. And so that floods our minds with a million objections. How can this be? How can anyone be saved if this is true? <clears throat> is this talking about how it's just so difficult? Not a complete disability? Well, I think of those texts. It's quite clear. This text here is quite clear. It says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not saying it's very unlikely or it's very hard. It means it cannot. It's the same way that you cannot flap your arms and fly. Can't do it. Same way you can't walk on your own two feet to Australia. Can't do it. It's an inability. You're unable to do that. Just like we're unable to please God. Unable to obey Him. Unable even to understand the things of God apart from the Spirit of God. So at this point, you can see why this can be controversial uh, what does it mean or how, how can anybody be saved can someone really have a desire to be saved and then they're somehow restrained or unable to be saved so I want to clarify this because even in Romans 3 it says that no one seeks after God no not one okay so what is what do these scriptures mean what is this inability well imagine a man locked in a room okay in this room it doesn't have many amenities you can think of it as a prison cell because there's bars on the window, the one little small window. 
There's bars on the door. This door is locked from the outside. There's no way he can get out. There's very few amenities in this room, apart from just a bed and just the basic necessities. And so we could say this man cannot get out of the room. He could try with all his might to break down that door. He can try to get out the window, but he cannot because of external constraint. Now, the scriptures say that we cannot please God, we cannot obey him, we cannot understand the things of God, but it's not because of external constraint. But rather, it's because we have set our minds on the things of the flesh. Think of a man now in that room. And that door is not locked. There's no bars on that window. And that room is just as bare as it was before, just as bed, just a small bathroom, and that's it. Nothing in there. Nothing that would say, well, this is a great room. I'd want to be in here all my life. But yet that man never even tries to go out the door. In fact, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to go out there. He looks at the window. I don't want that. And so he's unable to leave because of an internal constraint, because of immorality, because he has his mind set on the things of the flesh. Look with me again at the passage. Romans 8, verse number 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so this inability is not from external constraint. It's more profound than that. It's because of the sinfulness of our heart that we're unable to come to God, to please him, to obey him, to understand things of a spiritual nature. This is who we are apart from God's intervening grace. This is the extent of sin. This is how bad sin is according to this passage And I hope that you see our problem in a much greater light than you did before. Now, let's consider the solution before we close. Okay, let's consider the solution. There is only one solution. There's no morality, uh, religion, or law that can free us from this trap of sin, but only Jesus Christ. Look at me again, the first four verses in Romans 8. In light of what sin is, it says, "There is there, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is the root issue that needs to be dealt with is dealt with by our Lord Jesus Christ. No more condemnation. No more judgment from God. No more trap of sin. No more inability to do what is pleasing to God or to obey Him. All those things have been taken care of by Christ. No more failure to God's righteous requirement in His law. Those things have been satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent His own Son in the likeness of human flesh to do what we could not do what we were unable to do. We were in bondage to our sin and Christ came and rescued us. He drank the cup of God's wrath in our place and he achieved what we were unable to achieve. And he calls us 
to repent and believe. That's what Christ's message was. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe this good news that salvation from sin and death is found through Jesus Christ. Two important caveats that can keep us from apprehending this truth and knowing about Christ, but not knowing him truly. Okay, two things we need to realize as we consider the solution to sin. If you do not recognize that you are spiritually dead with no hope of escape, that you are in bondage to sin, that you have no righteousness of your own and that the righteousness of the law can't cut it. If you do not realize your sinful estate before God, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Now, why would I say that? It seems so cut and dry. How can you say if you don't recognize your own sinfulness, you cannot be saved because Jesus himself said, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. He came as a doctor for the sick, not for those who think that they're well. Unless you've come to terms with your own sinfulness and you recognize that what it says in this passage is saying about your heart apart from God's grace. That your mind is bent on the things of the flesh apart from God's grace. That you stand condemned before God, that you're hostile against God, that you deserve his righteous wrath and judgment. That hell is a place that you deserve apart from God's intervening grace to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we may give mental assent to these things and say, yeah, I'm a sinner. But you must actually believe that they're true of you. You must actually see your sin. And that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit does in our lives. to bring conviction of sin and God's righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we see the wretchedness that we are and we see there's no hope to be found anywhere except the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to him needy, not trying to, to puff ourselves up and trying to put on that good external exterior, recognize that all is worthless. And so if you don't believe that you're a sinner, you can't be saved. And if you have a pang of guilt but do not seek the Lord, you're in the same predicament. People can experience conviction of sin and yet not be saved. They can feel guilty and yet not be saved because they don't seek the one who offers salvation. And that's the second caveat. If you don't come to Christ, you cannot be saved. You can believe in Christ. You can believe that he died and rose again. You can believe that he is the savior for sinners. You can know people who've experienced great salvation. In fact, you can tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ and you could still be lost. How could I say that? Because it is not enough to know about Jesus Christ or not enough to believe certain things are true about him. Think about this for a second. You might know the best doctor in town. Okay? And you know that this doctor in town, he's the best because you've had other friends tell you about this doctor. You've seen some of his credentials. You've seen his schooling. You see how busy he is. Oh boy, you know that if there's any issues that people have, they need to go to this doctor because he is the best. He gives the best diagnosis, the best treatment. He's the best doctor in town. You can, In fact, you can tell other people around you, you need to go see this doctor. You got a problem? You go see him. He's the best doctor. 
But if you don't actually go and see that doctor yourself, does no good. And so often we can do the same thing about Jesus Christ. Oh, I believe Jesus is a savior. Yeah, you should, you should, you have, you're a sinner. You should go see Jesus. He's a savior. But we can never go, but we never go to him ourselves. And so not only do we need to see our sinfulness, but we need to see Christ as a solution. And now we need to go to Christ. We need to be broken over our sin. See, there's no hope apart from him and plead to him for forgiveness. Plead to him to change our hearts, to forgive us, to make us new, to confess our sin and to throw ourselves on his promises. We need to see Jesus as our hope, our life, our joy, our salvation. When we do that and we hear about sin, we recognize, yes, this is who I was, and apart from the grace of God, I would still be there. And so we worship and we rejoice. We worship and rejoice. As I end here this morning, two quick questions. First has to do with how does one then go from setting their minds on the things of the flesh to setting their minds on the things of the Spirit? Because this passage contrasts the two, but it doesn't tell you how you go from one to the other. If we have our minds set on the things of the flesh and we have an inability to do what is pleasing to God, we cannot go from mindset in the flesh to a mindset in the spirit apart from the intervening supernatural grace of God. I need to plead to God. We need to seek Him while He may be found, if that is your case. Now, why will we focus on that here this morning? The second question is, what does this have to do with the glory of God and the salvation of sinners? Because precisely that point, because as sinners, we're wretched and we're unable to come to God apart from His intervening mercy and grace. And the reason why God has done it this way is that His power will be seen at work in salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. So His power be demonstrated, so His glory be demonstrated, so that salvation would all be of God to the praise of His glorious grace, not because of anything we've done. And so that's why God has done it this way. So let's remember these truths. Let's take them to heart. Let's weep over our sin and rejoice in the salvation of Christ. Let's make sure that we've apprehended Christ and his precious promises. Let's close in prayer. Oh God, as we consider sin this morning, we we recognize that we've only scratched the surface As many here can testify, the more we grow as a Christian, the more we recognize our wretchedness. Such that Paul, at the end of his life, could say that he was the chief of sinners. Such that Isaiah, a holy man of God, can see you high and exalted and lifted up and say, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. In fact, the more that we grow in Christian maturity, the more we recognize our wretchedness. And yet we recognize the more that we see our sin for what it is, the more delight we see in our Lord Jesus Christ, the more precious our salvation becomes, the more wondrous the work of Christ becomes. Oh God, do that in our hearts here this morning. Let us see the great greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ in conquering sin and death such a fierce enemy that wages war in our souls. 
And for those here who do not know Christ, oh God, I pray that your spirit would work on their hearts. That they would see their wretchedness. They would mourn, be broken over their sin. And that you would bring comfort. And they would see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. That you would make them new. That you would send your spirit. That they would be born again. And they'd have a desire to please you. And that you'd give them the capacity and the ability to do this. Oh God, hear our prayer this morning. Revive our hearts. Awaken us to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please join me in standing in turn number 81.